Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and this is Drawn. I'll bet that you can hum or sing the theme song or some other piece of music from your favorite cartoon without having to dig very deep into the memory banks. One, two, three, go! It's your time. Come on, grab your Phineas and Firebox. Let's get dangerous. Music is a universal language. It speaks to us on a deep level and it gets into the corners of our brains. And for a lot of us, the music we heard in cartoons as kids seems to stick there forever. So when I was a little boy, the Looney Tunes cartoons were on Saturday morning. And uh, I would get up every Saturday morning and sit on the living room floor and turn on the television. That's conductor, producer, and director George Doherty, the creator of Bugs Bunny at the Symphony. Back in those days, this is, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, the, the sound came on pretty quickly, but the picture would take like two minutes to warm up and appear. But I could find the Looney Tunes cartoons by their sound, even when I was four or five years old, because they have such a distinctive musical and sound effects footprint that I could find them without even looking at them. And, you know, I find that um, a lot of people say the same thing, that these cartoons have a very, very, very specific Warner Brothers sound, Looney Tunes sound. George was already playing music himself as a kid, he wasn't conscious of exactly why he was connecting so strongly to the melodies that he was hearing. The Looney Tunes really appealed to me, and I had no idea why then. Later I would learn that Carl Stalling and Bill Franklin had filled them not only with their own miraculous compositions, but uh, filled them with Wagner and Rossini and Strauss and Donizetti. I mean, I, I, I'm just naming a few of the classical composers that are, you know, um, really heavily featured in all these Looney Tunes cartoons. So that appealed to me, and I didn't know why, but I just knew it did. So, um, you know, when I eventually heard The Barber of Seville, much later in my childhood, I thought it was a ripoff from uh, The Rabbit of Seville. I I was sure the rabbit of the bull must have come first. Hey, don't look so perplexed. Why must you be next? Can't you see you're next? Yes, you're next. You're so next. How about a nice close shave? Teach your whiskers to behave. Lots of leather, lots of soap. So still don't be a dope. Now we're ready 
Water scraping, there's no use to try escaping Yell and scream and rant and rave It's no use, you need a shave George's experience isn't all that unusual. I know that when I first heard Wagner, I yelled out, Bugs Bunny! (laughs) And I have spoken with a lot of other people who have had basically that same experience. We didn't even know we were being taught important symphonic pieces, but most anyone who grew up watching Looney Tunes can still hum a few bars of Wagner's ring cycle. reason those Bugs Bunny opera cartoons were so impactful is that they tap into cultural musical knowledge, but they distill it down in a way that honors the source material, but also makes it accessible to the audience, whether that means adults or kids. Almighty warrior of great fighting stock, might I inquire to ask if what's up, Doc? You know, What's Up, Doc is such a, an amazing miracle of a cartoon because Chuck Jones and Mill Franklin, you know, not only took all of the major themes from Wagner's Ring Cycle, so that's, you know, Dr. Domerang, Siegfried, Das Gold and uh, Die Volkere, but they also, if that wasn't enough, threw in Tannhäuser, The Flying Dutchman, Lohengrin, and Rienzi. So, you know, eight Wagner operas, that is somewhere in the vicinity of, I don't know, 70 hours of music, (laughs) and uh, they do it in six minutes and 32 seconds, which, you know, but yet everything is absolutely respected and the music is still gigantically Wagnerian in scope. That's what appealed to me as a kid. Um, you know, I couldn't define it, but I sure knew it. Later, I would discover Warner Brothers was one of the few studios that used the full Warner Brothers orchestra for their animated shorts, for their cartoon shorts. And at that time, most other studios used a really small studio orchestra. So that's what gave the Looney Tunes music this gigantic largesse and the huge sound that I would be able to find without even seeing Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck or Elmer Fudd on the screen. I could just find it by the music. It's easy to 
think of those classical pieces as being tied in animation terms to Bugs Bunny and to an older era of animation. But it might surprise you to know that classical music is still inspiring composers on today's most current and irreverent shows. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, my big favorite growing up was Dvorak. That's Ryan Elder. He is the composer on the Adult Swim show, Rick and Morty. I always like the Eastern European composers. And now lately I've been really getting into Maurice Ravel. I don't listen to a ton of classical, but when I do, it's usually <laughs> Eastern European romantic music. My biggest influence for Rick and Morty in terms of like tone and technique is Jerry Goldsmith, uh, Planet of the Apes score. If, we, if I can put that Planet of the Apes score on, it's like instant, uh, instant inspiration. between music and cartoons has been in place since the beginning. I mean, early cartoons, so many of the musicals, Silly Symphonies, Merry Melodies, Looney Tunes are all based around music. That's Rebecca Sugar, the creator of the show Steven Universe, which has a very rich musical component. Uh, Lapis? Are you okay? It all became so lovely Those blue skies above me Where there was color, there was music, and even where there was sound, people would play piano. I mean, music and animation were happening side by side. Antonin Dvorak, Richard Wagner, Johann Strauss, and the other composers that were mentioned by George and Ryan, aside from Jerry Goldsmith, all lived before animation was even invented. So while their music continues to inspire even today, in the first half of the 20th century, somebody had to figure out how to marry music and animation together. To get some insight into how that happened, I turned to David W. Collins. David is a composer, voiceover artist, sound mixer, and the host of the Soundtrack Show podcast, which tackles anything in entertainment that makes sound. You can hear the presentation of the hero, the crossing of the threshold, the gathering strength or series of ordeals, maybe the loss of a mentor, and the huge achievement. David first made clear that sound was often where animation began. Sorry, I'm just going on a historical tear here, but this is the stuff that I that I really geek out on is, is back in the day when there were all of these people in a room trying to figure out how all of this was going to work. And, and synchronization of sound and music was brand new, and it was a novelty um, back then, it was more like how opera and operettas used to be, which is that it all starts with the music and everything 
comes out of that. I mean, if you think about Steamboat Willie, for example, 1928, that's not the first Mickey Mouse cartoon. I think it's the third, second or third Mickey Mouse cartoon, but it's the first one that put him on the map and made Walt Disney Animation what it became um, and gave him the money to do silly symphonies, and which were all music-driven and big tech experiments. But like, what set it apart was not Mickey Mouse. It was the fact that it had synchronized music and musical gags and sound effects and even voiceover performances in a time before multitrack, in a time before they had really figured it out. And it was a year after the jazz singer came out, right? And even that was all music driven. So like everything in animation started out very music driven. And I, I think that those days are so interesting because, you know, music identified pacing and rhythm and emotion and character development. And it had all that information built in. And it was something that had developed over hundreds of years. Okay, David moves in this world all the time. His entire career is about sound. But to someone like me, the idea of figuring out how you would take an existing piece of music and then figure out how to make animated drawings that perfectly matched up to that music is mind-boggling. But thankfully, David broke it down for me. A lot of it came down to simple arithmetic, right? If you knew you were running at 24 frames a second and you had a, a piece of music that was 60 beats per minute, that means every 24 frames, there's like a beat of music. And let's say it was in double time, that means every 12 frames, there's a beat of music. So someone would actually go through and create, and Disney invented this thing called a bar graph. In those days, you couldn't do what we call dubbing today, where you could mix a lot of tracks. Uh, it wasn't yet the uh, science that, uh, that uh, you could get away with. So we used to have to do everything at one time. And we used to have to run the cartoon We'd have the fellows with the sound effects, we had the people with the voices, we had the orchestra going, and everybody had to synchronize. <laughs> Hit that thing right on the button. And we had a we had a way of doing it though. We had a little kind of a little beat that worked up and down and and uh, there were so many of those beats, you know, and they were all musicians working for me, so they could follow those beats and when it came to a certain number of beats they would go ah or they would go bang or they would go this or they would pop one of these pop guns, you know. And it would always fit. Oh, yeah, it was a madhouse. It really was. And I wasn't there, so let me qualify this. This is my understanding from what I have read, right, and what I've studied. They would basically say, okay, you know, after 173 bars, you're going to get this big stab in the low brass with the percussion going, right? So you're going to want to hit that you know, with um, some crazy, you know, visual gag on the screen. And then, you know, the strings go all the way until, you know, for another, you know, 60 frames at one point, and then a big, there's a big ballroom or something. And so they would kind of be able to map out by frames. In other words, how many pictures do you have to draw to get from point A to point B, which is similar to what people do now in animation, which is called keyframing. You know, at you know, at this point in the scene, they're going to be posed like this. And at this point in the scene, they're going to be co- posed like this. And now I have to interpolate and animate getting from point A to point B to point C. With music, you would just define where those points are. And someone would r- basically build you a roadmap of how to get there. That was time to a piece of music. And that's my rough understanding in my, you know, Pro Tools, computer, digital age of how the geniuses that came before us whose shoulders we are comfortably sitting upon figured out how to do this stuff. This seems like you could do the technical part, right? Getting the movement and the sound synced pretty easily today. 
But then I wondered, how exactly did this work in the pre-digital era? How did everything stay synced up? David enlightened me. It was all about the click track. I believe it's credited uh, to Max Steiner, who's a very prolific uh, classic Hollywood composer, did a lot of movies like Casablanca and Gone with the Wind and so on and so forth. He figured out that if you punch holes or have a music editor punch holes in your work print, in the soundtrack, you'll get a little boop, boop, like a little tick, you know, in your in your headphones. And, you know, if you, let's say, again, working at 60 beats per minute, you want one every 24 frames, you suddenly have a, uh, like a metronome. And now all the musicians and and uh, and the conductor can sit there and conduct along to a metronome. And even better, oh, well, once they cut to this scene, we want to move to, you know, uh, 92 beats per minute. And we want it to speed up from 92 beats per minute to 120 beats per minute over the next 30 seconds. And so someone's literally like punching holes in film you know, in order to create a click track that would move and they would rehearse it and he would speed up the orchestra, but he was guaranteed that they would all be playing in sync and that it would all work that way. These were very like analog, hands-on solutions that we now imitate with computers. that's probably the apex of marrying classical music to animation is Walt Disney's 1940 film Fantasia, in which each piece of music is animated as a standalone vignette. The Nutcracker Suite, The Rite of Spring, Night on Bald Mountain. Are all included in the film, along with other famous compositions. Walt Disney hired Leopold Stokowski to conduct the score for the film. You might recall from our Bugs Bunny episode, in the short Long-Haired Hair, Bugs pretends to be a famous conductor to get revenge on a snooty opera singer. That Bugs Bunny performance was based on Leopold Stokowski. Leopold! Fantasia was made at a time when, uh, oh, we had that feeling that uh, we had to open the doors here. This medium was something we felt a responsibility for, and we just felt that we could go beyond the comic strip. We could do uh, some very exciting, entertaining, and beautiful things with with music and picture and color and thing. Fantasia won Disney an Academy Award for, quote, outstanding contribution to the advancement of the use of sound in motion pictures. Even in more modern projects with original music, composers still have to ultimately serve the story with the music that they create. And I wanted to get some insight into that. This first person you'll hear is Michael Kohler. He's a producer and composer and sound designer, and he has worked on a long list of animation projects, including Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, and Archer. So what is the the process actually like for you, sort of from inception, like someone says, I have this show, it needs a score and sound, take it away, what do you do? Mm. 
Um, well, you know, and the, and the difference between doing shows and commercial work is a lot of times with music, for example, you may get a chance to do the music first. Uh, they may say, hey, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to be about. Um, I want it to be fast. I want, you know, they give you a certain set of parameters. Sometimes they don't give you much, but they say it's going to be about this show. Make something really fat, you know, up-tempo, poppy, whatever, or emotional, dramatic. Um, and so you're right. And then they kind of build around that, um, which is kind of a fun way to do it because then you get a chance to kind of lay that palette out. Sometimes they come with something that's completed and you're basically scoring and you're um, writing to it. So you're looking at visuals and even colors can kind of trigger an idea. You know, um, I always used to see storyboards sometimes, which are just really simple frames of what's going to happen and we'll write around that. Michael spoke a lot about designing the sound of a show and you're going to hear about that in an upcoming episode. But he also told me that the music is the more difficult element. Music is a tougher thing. So for me, music tends to be super personal when you're writing certain things. And I've gotten all the way through processes before and literally the night before. It happened, um, I did theme music for Boomerang when it launched. Um, and I had two of the pieces and I had to write this other action piece. And literally the night before at like 7 p.m., I was like, this is so wrong. And just trashed like several days worth of work and started again. And then I went from like midnight to three, and in three hours I had what I wanted and was pretty happy with it, you know, but you just never know how it's going to go. But um, so it's easier with sound design because uh, I think sound design I hear more before uh, music. I know the idea, but until I can find the sounds to do it. Before he worked on regular series, Michael worked on commercials for Cartoon Network. And one of the things that he worked on is very near and dear to my heart. They're called Cartoon Network Groovies. And those were commercials, but they were also like little music videos that showcased the characters from shows in really fun and unexpected ways. And uh, there was one that I did, one of the first ones called this Adam Ant piece. We must all get ready now. I um, started thinking about, you know, Adam Ant with the original cartoon and thinking about how it was focusing on the atomic era and that sort of thing. So I'd remembered, again, this recording in my brain, I'd remembered hearing these old propaganda tapes from the 50s about Duck and Cover and Red Nightmare. And I had them find out about licensing lines from it, and I chopped those lines up, you know. Um, a bright, bright flash, brighter than the sun, brighter than anything you've ever seen, you know, and it was perfect. Brighter than anything you've ever seen. Okay, I have sung the praises and declared my undying love for the Bugs Bunny operas, but one of my other favorite musical moments in cartoons actually came from one of these groovies. There is this fantastic clip that's Josie and the Pussycats performing the theme from the show, and over the course of the song, the musical style switches completely multiple times. transitioning from one to the other as the song progresses. It is incredibly clever. And when I was speaking with Michael Kohler, I realized that he was the one who made it. That was another one where they asked me to, to do that, and I hung up and went, I, there's no way. How are you going to go from disco to country to punk to rock to you know and I was like the tempos are all wrong and the instrumentations are all wrong but, but I said yes you know and then we started doing it and 
I was like, no, this this is the same tempo. Half time it. Oh, half time it for this. Double time it for the. And then all of a sudden it started falling together. That's the kind of stuff that makes you work at it. And that's what I think when I got pushed, you know, and it made me work that much harder at it. But it becomes the fun stuff, you know, as much as writing a piece of music yourself. Now it's difficult sometimes to sit down and write music because I'm like, what parameters do I have? Somebody give me something, you know, make it orange and sound like ham. While Michael's entree into animation was through commercials, Ryan Elder jumped right into working on an animated series after first starting a career in advertising. I started off just, honestly, like like any composer who wants to work on media, I started off just doing whatever I could do. And at the time when I started, that was advertising. I worked on advertising almost exclusively for about 11 years, from 2001 till about 2011 or 12. And then I went freelance and uh, actually right around then is when Rick and Morty started happening. I was working on ads and I had worked with Justin Roiland on several shorts that he was making for Channel 101. And Justin always did animation, almost always. And it was just sort of because Justin and I were friends and because he trusted me to do the music that he wanted... I ended up working on animation through that, but I love working on animation. It wasn't, I wouldn't say it was like my goal to get into animation, but I'm super happy that I'm in it because of, uh, as a composer, it affords you so many creative advantages that you don't get working for live action. Now, when you started getting into animation, did you start studying um, how other composers had written for animated shows or did you just wing it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, You know, I definitely went back and started watching The Simpsons and Futurama with a lot more of a critical eye. You know, I I can't give enough credit to Alf Clausen. His sensibilities for comedy and scoring are just absolutely perfect. And he's a big influence on me in terms of how I tell the story and how I leave room for comedy. It's a small intestine. It's a big intestine. I think one of the biggest things you can do, especially in animated comedy, is leave room for the comedy. Oftentimes, you can your music can tell the story perfectly without existing at all. Incidentally, and just because I also think Alf Clausen deserves a little extra praise, David Collins also gave a shout out to him and his fantastic work on The Simpsons. When I started really watching The Simpsons and like the power plant gets taken over by a German company and he, they're asking him for uh, <laughs> they're asking him for uh, recommendations on how to make the employees happy. Now maybe we can have more candy in the in the in the vending machine because people like candy. Of what kind of candy or whatever it was? And he's like, oh, I'd like chocolate. Oh, of course, Mister Simpson, we come from the land of chocolate. Mm, oh, the, the land, land of chocolate. chocolate. And Alf Clausen does this unbelievably schmaltzy, almost like Lawrence Welk type of ding 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 ding. You know, while Homer's like running through this imaginary make believe land of chocolate, and he's like super like rubato. Uh, strings, you know, just like doing these crazy schmaltzy lines. Like, 
that stuff is brilliant. Like, how do you decide that that's the creative direction to go in? You know, you just kind of pull a style out of, out of your hat and go with it. And it's like incredibly effective against the visuals, you know, that kind of stuff I love where, you know, there are these little musical moments and different set pieces that are tailored specifically to that moment, specifically to that episode. And the composer was given an opportunity to really just kind of make something unique and special and, and take the episode in a different direction. Okay. Going back to Rick and Morty, Ryan talked about the real gift of that particular show as a composer. Time. Yeah, the biggest example is you have more time. <laughs> uh, for live action stuff that I work on, it's you're lucky on a television show, a live action television show, to have a week to write the music for the whole episode. For Rick and Morty, I get... I get a long time. Like I start getting animatics about six months before we have to mix the final music. So I can really budget my time. If I'm not busy doing other things, I can really budget my time in a way that allows me to give it 110% on every episode. And I usually spend about two weeks per episode on Rick and Morty. That and then uh, animation traditionally, uh, the way, I don't know about traditionally, but just the way that I've worked on it is not temp scored, meaning the editors don't put music in there that they can't own that I have to then be inspired by or, uh, you know, uh, make my music in uh, like rip, rip that off or whatever. You know, I, I get to just go in with a clean slate and I set the mood. I set, I get to like use my own creativity to tell the story in a way that isn't locked in by this other track that someone else wrote. I was really glad that Ryan mentioned temp tracks because while he may not have to deal with them, a lot of composers do. And sometimes that can be really stressful. A temp track is a piece of music that's perhaps selected early on in the process that has the right feel or tempo for what the director is going for with the cartoon. And sometimes that music is used as the temporary soundtrack. It's not something that's licensed for the project. It is literally a placeholder that guides the production process, but it's meant to be replaced by an original piece of music later. And sometimes directors fall in love with their temp tracks, and that puts composers in the awkward position of having to compose a piece of music that's really close to that placeholder music. David Collins elaborates. I have heard temp music followed so closely that I w started wondering if there would be a lawsuit. And and to be to be totally fair, this is a, a well-known problem, I think, amongst composers. You know, um, some composers go as far as to say you're not a real composer until someone has sued you for ripping them off. And, and it will happen to you because you're being asked to chase temp music from, from that someone else put in. But I was watching a show and I was like, that sounds exactly like a theme from, you know, some movie that I saw in like the late 80s or early 90s. And, you know, it happened once and I didn't think much about it. And then I'd watch another episode. And I'm like, man, that's it's kind of happening again. You know, that um, th it's a real problem. I mean, and it's common, you know, but uh, I think if you don't give the composer enough time to kind of come up with an alternate solution and sometimes and there's a difference between an homage and a full on lift, you know, if there's like some sort of agency of choice, like, hey, we're really going for this right here. And like a wink, wink, we all kind of know this is a callback to Ghostbusters or whatever. Speaking of Ghostbusters, it happened, right? Uh, Ray Parker Jr. and Huey Lewis in the news, right? Ghostbusters! 
that kind of stuff happens all the time. We heard briefly from Rebecca Sugar earlier in this episode, and she is something of an accidental songwriter, at least when it comes to making music as a job. I never thought I'd be doing music professionally in any way. That was a very private hobby. I think if I, if someone went back in time and told me I'd be writing songs for television, I would like laugh. I'd be like, what? <laughs> no. That might be a bit surprising. Rebecca's show, Steven Universe, is known for its music. Everybody told me gem stuff dangerous. I guess I didn't believe it until now. That always seemed apprehensive. And now he's really freaking out. What do I do? I was fine with the men who would come into her life now and again. I was fine because I knew that they didn't really matter until you take a moment to think of just flexibility love and trust here comes a thought that might alarm you what's massive groups of people gather at pop culture conventions to all sing along with the show's tracks together legendary broadway singer patty lupone provides the voice of the character yellow diamond on the show why would you want to be here? What do you ever see here that doesn't make you feel worse than you do? And tell me, what's the use of feeling blue? Why? It is a music show. But for a long time, Rebecca only shared her music with a couple of people, including her brother, Stephen. But her love of animation's musical roots finally gave her the courage to try writing songs for shows. It was like me and Steven and like my closest friend, like they were the only people that ever heard me sing. The first time I, d I pitched a song for Adventure Time, I was so nervous. I had to go on the roof and just practice being loud enough that people would be able to hear me because uh, I didn't want to sing in front of a room full of people. I'd never done that before. But music and animation are so tied together and, and so much of my favorite animation is tied to music. Uh, the thing about those early cartoons is that a lot of that was music that existed or it was built around the music where the music came first. I asked Rebecca if she had a favorite song from the show and she surprised me by telling me a story about the end credits music. And it's a testament to how an artist can sometimes reveal things to themselves in their work. Oh, I do. I do. Um, my favorite is Love Like You. Love Like You is the most unusual one because it started, it's our credits song. But the music for the credits was a melody written by Ivy and Sarashi, my composers. And they started out with this melody. They wanted to have it for the credits. I thought it was just lovely. And it was just a simple piano tune. And they built on it and built on it. And then they told me like, oh, we want this to eventually have lyrics. And I was like, oh, okay. And they're like, we want you to sing it. And I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> if I could begin to be half of what you think of me, I could do about anything. I could even learn how to love. So I wrote lyrics to the melody that they had written. And my thought at the beginning was, it will seem like a love song, but it's actually science fiction. This is an alien singing about how they're looking at human beings and they're fascinated by their capacity to love because this person, this alien, can't do that. I always thought I might be 
But this is deep in the show. This is getting towards 2015 where I was really stressed too thin and worrying what everyone would think all the time. You think I'm so special. And I've gone through this thing. I, it's just like hit me like a ton of bricks where I'm like, this song is never about aliens. The song is about a person who is so self-depreciating that they can't understand why people care about them. The meaning of the song completely changed, and I was like, oh, this person, this character, this person that feels like an alien that can't understand why anyone likes them, like, has to put that effort in to not feel that way. And it fit, <laughs> it fit because the, you know, the show is about these aliens that are fascinated by humanity, that are on this mission to understand and participate in humanity. And I guess I didn't realize when I started that I felt that way. And I, at the end, I was like, oh, I have to change. <laughs> A piece of music in animation, whether you notice it consciously or not, can completely change the way you feel about what you're seeing. David Collins mentioned when we talked that this was something that animators have been aware of since the beginning. But music is so important because, you know, music can also be an adjustment to a scene that isn't working. Or if, you know, like they, the... Um the Nine Old Men of Disney, what they used to say is if a scene was too scary, the music could play against that, you know, to, to make the visuals less scary, it could soften it. You know, if a scene was too intense, it could, it, could, it could soften it. Or if they needed to ratchet up the tension between characters, the music could do it, even though it's not on the screen. That stuff is always true of animation, of film, of anything. I mean, that is the power of music. You know, opera composers knew this 400 years ago, and it's, this, it's as true now as it was was then. You know, music has the power to... Uh, give you an emotional narrative, and that is that will never be unimportant. Ultimately, music and animation make each other better. They're kind of like chocolate and peanut butter, making a whole that is indeed greater than the sum of its parts. And it is just as thrilling for musicians to experience as it is for those of us who might be less musically inclined. Once again, here's George Doherty. There is something amazing about Chuck Jones and Carl Stalling and Mel Franklin's vision of what opera is played on the stage of the Sydney Opera House, the most recognizable opera house in the world, and all the other places we've played. Doing it at Lincoln Center, doing it at Severance Hall in Cleveland, doing it at the Hollywood Bowl. The fact that their vision and their version of opera ballet and symphonic music is playing on the greatest classical stages of the world, I think is, is incredibly relevant to the recognition of what they did. I think that this never would have lasted. We never would be playing on these great classical stages if the material wasn't worthy to be there. And the one thing I have never seen in 28 years is a bored musician during this concert. Because number one, the music is difficult, but it's also rewarding. It's also, you know, gratifying. It's fabulous to play. It's perfectly and beautifully composed and and scored. Musicians love it. And audiences love it too. 
I will bet just listening to this, you probably have an itch to go look up The Rabbit of Seville or your favorite part of Fantasia or another beloved cartoon that is colored by music. So have at it. But before you go, get ready, because next time we're going to transition over to sound in a different way. We are going to talk about all the zips, pows, bangs, and other noises that add comedy and depth to animation. I want to thank everyone who spoke with me for this episode and a special thanks to the Walt Disney Family Museum for providing clips of Walt Disney speaking about Fantasia. If you would like to visit Drawn Podcast online, you can do that at drawnpodcast.com. You can also email drawnpodcast at howstuffworks.com and find us across the spectrum of social media as Drawn Podcast. 